Chances are, if you like this podcast, you'll like other podcasts made by Lush. So why not listen to the Lush podcast? It's a podcast. It's made by Lush, hence the name. Find it where you find podcasts, usually on the internet. Hello, and welcome to the John Rod Tapes. And in this episode, I speak to Benjamin Zephaniah about his life growing up in Birmingham and the impact that music and comedy has upon him. When I started doing poetry, well, poetry in the broadest terms, I started on the sound systems, close to. I was creating poetry in the playground, but that was just to get a kiss from a girl. <laughs> you know, as to go to a girl, say, what's your name? Make up a poem and just get a kiss. Yeah. Um, or a sweet. Um, so I liked, I used to call it playing with words. Then I started toasting. And for anybody that doesn't know what toasting is, it's kind of Jamaican rap, before rap. I write, you write, big youth, that kind of stuff. Total genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. Big youth, what a voice. M- my hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting, it's a lot of people listen to me and they, they may say the content of my stuff is kind of influenced by Bob Marley and politics and everything else. But actually, I think my style, if anything, is very close. Well, high, I shouldn't say very close because he may beat me up, but <laughs> highly influenced by big youth. Mm. You know, he was my number one. He has the uh, biblical thunder, I always think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can take something from the Bible and take something from now and talk about the way police just beat him up and just mix it all up together. But anyway, so I'm listening to these guys, well, doing something similar to that. And I made a name for myself in Hansworth because I was, a lot of them would talk about what was going on in Jamaica and I found it a little bit fake. It's a little bit like what hip hop, when hip hop kind of took off and a lot of British cats were kind of uh, mimicking the Americans and then you got Rodney P come out and just did it in Cockney. Mm. Well, I listened to the reggae music and kind of did my toasting. But I would talk about what happened in Handsworth and, and then it, it kind of got political because the National Front started coming for us and they would come to our dances and stuff like that and then I would kind of be toasting about that. And... Um, and every now and again, in between the tracks, I would do a bit of poetry. I'd basically keep talking. And, and, and I can remember one day somebody said to me, remember, this is a purely black scene. Yeah. There were a couple of white kids, but you'd have to be really trusted. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they used to bring plain clothes police in and all that stuff. So, you know what I mean? If you're the white cat, you had to really have a good friend. And then once he's all right, you know, mm-hmm. ah, he's with me, he's cool. You know, it's yeah, all right. Yeah. You know. Um, and so um, somebody said to me, I'll never forget it, somebody said, you know, your stuff, white people can, could, would, would enjoy that too. White people can get off on that. And I was like, you think they want to hear this stuff, you know what I mean? Because like, it's all against slavery and against racism and all that stuff. And when you live in a little cocoon like that, you can think everybody out there, all the white people out there, don't like you, you know, because we're in a community which is very Caribbean. And most of the white people we see are basically police back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because um, Hansworth was, was the biggest West Indian area of Britain, wasn't it? I think time. so, yeah, at the time, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and every now and again you'd be on the streets and a guy would come up to you, a white guy, and he'd say, yeah. And you'd look at his shoes and you could see, you know, he's a policeman. Because he, he's trying to dress back. Shiny and shoes. And he's got shiny shoes. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd go, 
have you got any reefer? And you go, reefer with a bloke like that. I thought, what reefer? He just read a textbook on something. How to speak Jamaican. And completely out of date. Um, but yeah, then, and then I said, right, okay, let me just test this. And I went to a community centre and just did it as poetry. And people loved it, you know. And then I remember, I used to um, have a, a girlfriend. I think she can call, I can call her a girlfriend. And um, there's a band in Birmingham called Fashion. Ever heard mm. of them? Yeah, I remember Fashion. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And this girl was kind of... We, used, we all used to kind of hang around together. And, um, and it, there was this guy that had... I, can't, I cannot remember his name, but he lived in a kind... Of, I'm sure it was a squad. But when you walked in the house, it was just like all the wallpaper was just new musical express and sounds. You know, it, it decorated the whole house with that. So you could literally walk in and just start reading about, you know, bands that were big in the time. And, you know, mm. and he would just, in his room, it was empty. And he just had this great sound system. And he would just play records. And then he would stop and play and put the radio on and listen to John Peel. And I remember one day he played me a track by Patrick Fitzgerald. And it was about how tough it is being white and living on a council estate. And at the end of the track, he goes, what have we got left? We ain't got anything except reggae. <laughs> and I went, those white cats are like reggae. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like, white, white people like it, you know? <laughs> and it really, it kind of, it made me go, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to London. Because you saw there was a connection. Yeah, yeah. And I heard about the punk thing and stuff, and it wasn't really taken off in Birmingham. There was, a, there was a club called Killing Time. And I remember this guy took me there, this black guy took me there, and I was a little bit scared. He was like, no, these white kids are cool. <laughs> you know, these white kids are cool. And um, I think he was selling weed. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> but I went there, and I just remember feeling great. And, of course, they would play some punk, and then they'd stop and play reggae, and they'd go, wow. Mm. Oh, this is amazing, you know. And, um, and it was difficult for me at the time because I was kind of living a kind of slightly unlawful life, you know, doing things that were kind of illegal. To you money. got in trouble, didn't you? Couldn't get a job. Yeah. I was in and out of prison and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, but it, was, it stayed with me. It stayed with me. And then one day I just went, ah, I'm giving all this stuff up and I'm going to London. Was that, was that an attempt to get away from getting into trouble as well? Yeah. Or do you see London as a place that had opportunity? Or do you feel there's no scene really in Birmingham? I felt the scene was kind of too small in Birmingham. Small to no scene. And, um, and actually, it was just a couple of clubs. And on the whole, they tended to be white clubs and black clubs. And I saw this thing going on in London that was very much more mixed, you know. And Steel Pulse, mm. they, you know, they came from my side of town, and I knew them. They're older than you, weren't they? No, we were around the same age. Around the same age. Were they yeah. really, I don't know. They were yeah. very young. Yeah, at the I, time. Think, I think me and David were more or less. Yeah. I think we were just a few months between us. The best uh, for me, I would say, the greatest British reggae band. I think one of the best reggae bands in the world. Amazing bands. I yeah. think we are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. Um, and I don't say that because they're from Birmingham. I mean, just the way they, they, they really craft the song and everything, you know, they think they're brilliant. Just the groove, they have this really heavy yeah, groove about yeah. them as well. And they were playing down in London, and I saw some footage and stuff, and they were telling me about the kind of mixed audiences they were playing to. And I was like, yeah, that's where i got to go. Mm. 
And um, so it was, an, it was kind of getting out of the lifestyle I was in in Birmingham, wanting to, wanting to kind of meet similar minds, people that were kind of into poetry and art and music and whatever. Um, and um, yeah, and the police were after me. Start <laughs> <laughs> so spelling up a little bit. <laughs> the police were after me. They're actually after me for a murder. Were they? Seriously. Well, I don't know if you know, my autobiography's coming out in May, so I write about this a lot. They were after me for a murder, and, and, and I didn't do it, obviously. What it was, there was a, a body in the boot of a car that I was robbing. Okay. And my fingerprints were all over the car. Yeah. And I used to kind of, I came down to London, and suddenly I was on television, and, I, and Channel 4 just came in. And I used to do a lot of live stuff on Channel 4. And I'd do the programme, and I think the police are watching it, and then I'd come out the studio and run like crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> I thought, I got away with it then, and then they put me again. I thought, oh, what can I do with this? <laughs> and in the end, I just went to Birmingham, gave myself up, and they said, oh, we know it's not you. <laughs> you know, yeah. We found a real culprit. What was initially like in London when you got here? Was it, was it the street to pave with gold or was it no, or did no, you have no, some no. connections that made things happen for you? At first it was difficult because I, I, um, I didn't really know anybody in the music scene, the art scene at all and I was just staying with a friend in Peckham, New Cross and going to sound system dances again. But um, I met a couple of people, two people in particular, one woman and one guy, who, um, uh, one of them introduced me to Peter Tosh. Literally one day she said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going down the road, do you, do you want to come with me? I'm going to meet Peter Tosh. Well, Peter wow. Tosh. Yeah. <laughs> Peter yeah. Tosh, you know what I mean? Definitely not yeah. worth now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yes. And um, I went and met Peter Tosh, and we just got on so well. And for absolutely no reason at all, he just went to me, what are you doing for the next couple of weeks? And I went, Nothing. He went, come on tour with me. And I just toured with him around Britain and he just gave me a hotel room next to him. And I was like, do you want me to work or what? And he was like, no, just hang out with me. Wow. You know what, I mean? what, what reason do you think that was? Do you think he saw he something in you? He liked my poetry. Yeah. He, and he knew that I'd written to Bob Marley when I was young. I'd written to Bob Marley and Bob Marley wrote me a letter back. Mm. And I told him about it and he went, yeah, man, the youth, man, the poet, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> um, so that really helped me when it come to the music scene, because you know you're a friend of Peter Tosh's. <laughs> There's a lot you of doors open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and then on the other side, um, I started doing a couple of gigs not too far from here in East London, and um, they were in like community centres and a, 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 it's North it's East London University now, but it used to be called NELP, North East London Polytechnic. I remember a guy came there and he spotted me. And he was instrumental in, well, quite instrumental in bringing people like Alexis Sale and um, Dawn French. Well, he started a thing called Alternative mm -hmm. Cabaret. Ro Roland McDoon, do you know him? Another name, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And he also, he was the guy that got the Hackney Empire when it was just a bingo hall, just doing nothing mm -hmm. and made it back into a theatre. Great guy. 
real kind of left-wing campaigning guy. And do you know Red Saunders? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they were all friends and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we've got this thing we want to do, a thing called New Variety. So, you know, we can have a singer, we can have a comedian. There's a group called Frank Chickens, I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. them. Yeah, remember and, that, um, yeah. um, oh, so many great names. Um, and the idea was, you didn't know what was happening next, just like the old variety vaudeville stuff. Mm. So you could get a juggler, then you like get turns. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so that was happening alongside the kind of reggae scene. That's why my first single was called Dob Ranting, because I was doing dub poetry, and then you started to get Stephen Wells or Swells, mm. Attila the Stockbroker, John Cooper Clark, um, Porky the Poet, and all that kind of stuff was happening. And, and then you had the dub poetry. You had Linton Cody Johnson, Oko Nora, Jean Breeze. And I was in both camps. Mm. So my first single was called Dub Ranting, because the white guys call themselves ranting poets, and we call ourselves dub poets. Mm. But I kind of ranted dub, <laughs> you know? So. Which, which is actually quite interesting, what you do in it, because you are taken from both, yes. making your own, aren't you? So yeah. there's something... Yeah, there's something very Jamaican about what you do. Yeah. There's also something really quintessentially English about what you do as well. Yeah, well spotted. Because you know, a lot of the time, a lot of Jamaican people were saying, can you be a bit more Jamaican? And I go, no, you know, <laughs> come from Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we spoke Jamaican in Birmingham. But it depended on who we were talking to, mm -hmm. you know. Um, did you feel both or did you... Is this like a new generation, you know, the first generation that came in yeah. in the early 60s were very Jamaican, weren't they? Yeah. And, the, and you're the first, the second generation, the yeah. ones who are born to those people. So yeah. you, you've got those English influences, haven't you? Yes, of course. So was this a way to get, come to terms with this? You know, for good or bad as well? Um, I've, yeah, in a way, I mean, the poetry and expressing the poetry that wasn't strictly Jamaican or particularly English, but both, mm -hmm. you could recognise both in it, was, it was just natural to me. You know, it wasn't faked, it wasn't phony. If I went on and just tried to sound Jamaican, it would be completely fake. And if I went on and just sounded Brummy, it would be completely fake as well. I mean, we, we talked Jamaican with a bit of Brummy in it. And I remember hearing some of the white people from Birmingham speak Brummy, and I'm like, oh, that's really strong. <laughs> you know what I mean? I remember coming down to London when I heard black people sounding Cockney, I was like, I, <laughs> to be honest, I kind of laughed. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they laughed. You just at never heard that. Yeah, I'd never heard it. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But they they laughed at me. Yeah. Um, I remember <laughs> many years afterwards, um, me and Swells actually, we were, we were doing a gig at the at the um, Edinburgh Festival, and there was this white guy in the audience who we kind of went out with for a drink afterwards, and he was Scottish, but he was completely into reggae music and everything, and I'm I'm terrible at doing accents. But when he met me, he was like, I re-rust the man. <laughs> the <laughs> oh, just Jamaican, Scottish thing. Man, like the roots reggae, I am. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he was great. And he had this kind of reggae club in, in, in Scotland. He was flying the flag for reggae, you know. That's what we are. You know, I don't want to get heavily political, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people bang on about multiculturalism, and there's almost like a, a backlash against it now, and saying we've got to have... We've all got to kind of find an idea of Britishness and all that kind of stuff. It's all bullshit. Britain has always been multicultural, mm. always. The Angles and the Saxons, the Celts and the Juts, all different cultures that came here. 
and now, you know, there's the Jamaicans and the Asians and the Middle Eastern and whatever. We've all, it's the one thing, well, not the one thing, but it's one of the most important things that we've done well for mm -hmm. thousands of years. You know, we've always been this mongrel race. Um, the problem with multiculturalism is that people's perceptions of it. So when something goes wrong, they go, oh, multiculturalism, this is, this is the problem. But actually, we do it really well. It's kind of something that ticks, ticks over in the background and you don't notice it. You don't notice it. You know, I remember I got my band together a few years ago and uh, I got, it's a reggae band, so I got the bass and drums, you gotta get that tight. And then I got a guitarist and he was an Indian guy and he could, he could really hold that reggae rhythm. Chitty, chitty. And I said, like, can you play a lead? And his lead sounded like it was really Indian, basically, on the guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was like playing the sitar style on the guitar, <laughs> you know, and it was just so beautiful. And we all went, yeah, you know, and it just happens naturally, you know, and, and that's why we're so good at music. Mm. You know, if you look at this little place, because Britain's quite small, really, and our cultural influence around the world is so strong because we innovate kind of naturally, really. Um, I mean, even the Beatles will tell you that, you know, well, being near the docks, play black listen, music, you listen to black music, yeah, getting the, the records, records from the ships yeah, and everything, yeah. you know. Every people have the right to determine their own destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These rights must be given to the people of South Africa. For there shall be no mercy for those who uphold these racist palaces. No tears shall be shed for their blood, for they are a wicked, evil people. Illegal invaders, and they must be driven away as the wind blows the sands of the shore. So must they be driven away. This is the true vice of the people. Don't talk to them. Don't be them friends. No there are places in Birmingham that I couldn't go when I was a kid. There are places, when I came to London, 78, there are places around here which you couldn't go with the black people. Mm. Canning Town was a no-go area. Even though you crossed the A13 and you went into a place that looked partly like India and Jamaica. <laughs> I remember I tried to get a taxi driver to take me to Canning Town once, just because I'd heard about it. Anyway, I'm not doing it. He said, and I, and I said to him, you know, don't feel sorry for me, I, you know, I'll take care of myself. He said, I'm not worried about you, what they'll do to me for bringing you in, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, really dangerous place. And, mm. and so um, it, it, it's kind of hard for a lot of people to imagine now. I remember when we used to leave, leave dances sometimes, um, the National Front would be waiting outside. There's a, there's a poem in my first book, Penrhythm. It's called Call It What You Like, because I didn't even bother thinking of a title. But it's about being in this reggae dance and the National Front coming in. And they brought loads of people to like smash up this dance and beat us up. And you know when a dance is just getting going and there's not enough people in there? So they completely outnumbered us. Mm. And there were kids there and they were smashing them and stuff like that. You know, you tell that to, another, to the generation of kids coming up now and they can't imagine it, you know? Um, gangs of skinheads, and I say racist skinheads because I had skinhead friends that were scar skinheads, you know, they were good guys. But just groups of skinheads walking down the street looking for black people to beat them up. And cops that would protect them, you know, <laughs> that, that made it worse, you know what I mean? So things have changed, of course things have changed. Um, there's still racist cops and there's still racist people. They've just got to be a lot more sophisticated now, if I can use that word. Yeah. They've got to be a yeah. bit more clever with their racism. 
So were you politicised when you moved to London, or were you politicised? Because in Birmingham you get to trouble. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a political backdrop already, or maybe you were just like a, a wild kid. But when you got to London, you put your energy into poetry, but also your energy into idealism and politics yeah. as well. I mean, is well, that, or, or was it somebody? Were the people surround you with good ideas that, that sort of clicked with you? Why I made my name in Birmingham on the toasting scene was because. I would listen to the radio and the television and, and hear about Martin Luther King and hear about what was going on in South Africa. The big war at the time was the Biafran War, although that was a kind of black-on-black -black war. But I'd, I'd, you know, and even the Vietnam War, I remember kind of hearing about that. And, and, and so I'd kind of get little bits of it and I would kind of understand the right and wrong of it and put that into my poetry. And that's why a lot of people said I was kind of ahead of my years when it comes to my knowledge of world politics. Uh, looking back, it wasn't a great knowledge, but you know, I cared, and so I'd mm. do a little bit of research. Um, but my first, I think my first political act was going into school. Would you remember Angela Davis? Yeah. Right, you remember the Free Angela Davis campaign, mm. the Fist and the Afro mm. and everything. And I went into school and I had like, a picture of Angela, well, a, a drawing of Angela Davis. It just used to be the Afro, and we'd know that's <laughs> Angela Davis. And I'm here, the Black Power Fist, there. And the teacher told me to get rid of them, to take them off. Wow. In front of the class. So I just put my trousers down. <laughs> 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 and, you know, the boys in the school, <laughs> you know, it was really funny. So I didn't mean take them off like that, get rid of them. <laughs> I said, no, no, my hero. Mm. And um, I got kicked out of school. And... My mum got a little bit upset. She didn't quite understand why I was making a stand about it. Um, and I didn't understand it all. I just knew she was a strong black woman freedom fighter. Mm. America's most wanted. And she escaped from jail. And I was like, what? You know? <laughs> and I was only a kid. Um, so I was kind of aware. It was when I came down to London, really. Well, I mean, in Birmingham, as I said, the National Front were there. And I understood the politics of the police not liking me and some, some white people not wanting me in their country and all that kind of stuff. But I was really lucky. I came to East London in Stratford and there was like an, an alternative bookshop that wanted to publish me. And I started to read and talk to these people and they were like, just every kind of minority <laughs> in this little place and it wasn't tokenism, you know, it was people that cared about these Just there anyway. They yeah, they were just that. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it was like going to university, you know. Mm. It was like, because if I had a question, they would um, answer it. And some of them, you know, were, I was going to say quite extreme, but I couldn't understand where they were coming from. I remember once, I think Lionel Richie used to have a song, Once, Twice, Three Times a Lady. And mm. I was singing it, run, run. And this one was like, no, once a lady is enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to get a lecture on why you shouldn't be once, twice, three times a lady. So there's some sternness <laughs> you know. there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, but it really kind of helped me, you know, um, and it really kind of educated me um, in, in politics. And but you, you were bringing stuff in as well, weren't you? Yes, yeah, yeah because yeah. they didn't know about my experience. Mm. And there wasn't a lot written about the kind of experience of black people in Britain. And sometimes, you know, I'd turn up at the shop beaten up. You know, <laughs> so I'd tell them the story and write it down in poetry or whatever. So um, there's an old Rasta saying, I don't know if it's just Rasta or whatever, but we always say each one teach one. You know, mm. We learn from each other. I mean, talk about Rasta. I mean, is that something that's really ingrained you, the Rasta ideology? There's, there's such a lot of different versions of it. Yes, yeah. So 
What's your take on, on the Rasta? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, people who look at Rasta from the outside always find it very difficult to pin down. The Roman Catholic Church once did a survey or study into Rastafarianism, and um, they put a lot of money into academics and people trying to work it out. And they came away and just threw their hands up and said, we can't understand it, you know. <laughs> yeah. They've got no leader. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no one church. Uh, you've got some people who are extremely religious in the Rastafarian movement. You've got some that are not. You've got some that are more kind of left-wing, they're more kind of socialist. Um, I guess I kind of go to that side. Um, you've got some that, um, you know, drink. You've got some that are vegans. You've got some that are not. And the interesting thing, no Rasta can look at the other one and say, you're not a Rasta for doing that. It's kind of like Buddhism in a way. So you do what you have to, what's good for you. You will answer to it with your own conscience in the end. Mm. Ideally, if you can live without eating meat, you should do, because it's living without killing. But mm. if you can't, then you have to justify that kind of thing. You got Rastas who kind of wear lots of gold and stuff like that, and then you got Rastas like me that think, you know, it's all exploitation gold. It's you know, mm. um, so you know, I've I've been asked this question hundreds of times. I've talked to loads of academics all over the world. I've thought about it a lot, and I've come to the conclusion that there's only three things that hold Rastas together that makes us say that we are Rastas. One which is kind of obvious now, but at the time, in the early days of the movement, people questioned it. But one is that we all come from Africa. Mm. Africa is our home, yeah? And Ethiopia is the best representation of that because it's unconquered, yeah? Two, Haile Selassie. A lot of people have a problem with Haile Selassie. Some people have a problem with his politics and all, and all that, that kind of stuff. But we know that he's a direct descendant of Solomon. He's directly linked to the family of Solomon and David. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when you talk to different Rastas, they'll see that in different ways. You talk to some 12 tribes people, they'll say that's a reincarnation of Christ. Some other people say he's just a member of the family, you know, but he just happened to be the king. Mm -hmm. you know, but those are two things. And the other is Marcus Garvey. You have to recognize Marcus Garvey as a kind of modern day, although it was in the 1920s and 30s, modern day prophet. And those are the three yeah. things. You can ask any Rasta about those three things, and they will say yes. Then ask them if they're a vegan, you'll get all different answers. You can ask them if they believe in driving cars. Some Rastas don't believe in wearing shoes. <laughs> uh, you know, some Rastas think it should be in heels. There's some Rastas that hated Bob Marley because he put on jeans and everything, and they saw him as... No, sorry, I've got to take that back. They criticised me for that. They didn't hate him. Mm -hmm. They criticised him and said he was selling out for kind of putting on this stuff and being a rock star like, and even kind of putting a lot of jingles into reggae. You know, reggae was supposed to be roots, drum, bass, mm. you know, and lo loads of things that make it radio friendly. Um, but he's still a raster, you know, and so we can have that discussion within ourselves. But those are the three things that you'll find all rasters have in common. What pulled you into the uh, Rasta culture? Was, was it initially Bob Marley, or was it or, no. or, or reggae no. itself, or just well, was it Hansworth anyway? I love Bob Marley, but I loved him as a as a poet. Mm. And I love. I remember this is a difficult thing to for some people to understand. And um, but <laughs> I liked Bob Marley when he wasn't really that popular within the black community. Oh, you mean, was it later on? Or? No, no, or no, earlier. in the early days. Oh, when he's culty, well, yeah. Actually, when I say not, 
let me take that back. When he wasn't really popular within the Rastafarian community, within the blues dance, you didn't really hear Bob Marley play that blues. That was drum and bass. That was Burning Spear, Pablo Moses. That was a real roots reggae, mm -hmm. the dub. Mm. You know, and if you listen to anything that Bob Marley's done that's really dub, it's usually on his own label. He didn't do that stuff with Island, mm. you know, and the Tough Gong label, Roots, Naughty Roots, those kind of tracks, which are not that radio friendly because they're really heavy on the bass. If you put them on like a transistor, you can hardly hear it because it's all <laughs> bass, you know. Um, so it wasn't just Bob Marley. I always admired him as a poet. I used to like listen to his words. Sometimes I'd write them down and just read them as a poem. For me, the, attract the attractive thing about Rastafarianism was that you could be political and spiritual at the same time. And I found that most people were either one thing or another. A lot of the political people around me said, oh, no, there's no spiritual aspect to me. You know, it's, it's just Marxism and religion mm. being the opium of the people and all that stuff. And a lot of people who really just said, we don't deal with politics, you know. But Rastafarianism says, it, the, the interesting thing was it didn't actually, you wouldn't say politics, you know. You interview Bob Marley and you say, I don't deal with politics, you know. But yet you look at the, the lyrics and it's so political. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we didn't really see it as politics. We see it as just talking about our reality. Social politics. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about the way we live. If you want to call it politics, call it politics. But we're talking about the way we live, we're talking about the conditions we live in, the way we policed. And of course, you know, if I had to go and talk about that in a lecture in university, it'd be on the politics. Mm. You know? But we just called it our reality. And the idea that, the, first of all, the, there's the Jamaican context, but I'm going to talk about the British context. Here we are. As I said earlier, we can't walk some of the streets in Birmingham and London and Manchester because um, of the National Front or the police. We live in the worst houses and the council estates, et cetera, et cetera. You know the whole story. Mm. So, so I've got five minutes of a single. It used to be three and a half minutes to do a single back in the day, right? Or whatever it is. I've got a three-minute slot on television to do poetry or whatever. You think I'm going to go in there and talk about the daffodils? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to talk about our reality. You think I could do a poem about how beautiful the sunset is and then go back to Handwerk? <laughs> you had five minutes on television to talk about how we're living. You talked about the bloody sunset. No, we had to re represent ourselves, you know? And mm. we were desperate. We were, you know... Because it's one of the few voices that actually get heard. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there was very few black voices in the media. So when we had the opportunity to go and speak, we had to represent, you know, and it wasn't like, sometimes I get interviewed with people and they, they, um, they, they think I've chosen a career like Bob Dylan or something, you know, did you choose to be a protest poet? <laughs> I didn't choose to be a protest poet, somebody's beat me up, right? so <laughs> yeah, wrote yeah, yeah. you Veganism is very important for you. I mean, that nowadays it's a big thing, isn't it? but you're one of the first sort of people. That... It's really amazing now when I look yeah. at it and see what's happening. I mean, vegan restaurants shooting up everywhere and 
everybody wants to be vegan. It's, again, I always feel so old when I talk about this, but back in the day, it was really difficult. I mean, I'm addicted to cakes and sweets and stuff. And I think it's because I couldn't get them when I was young as a vegan. <laughs> I remember I went vegetarian at 11 and vegan at 13. How did you become yeah. vegetarian at 11? Because I, it was, it, there was not many vegetarians around that time. There was not much information about it, was there? I was having a conversation with my mother about where meat came from. And I, I just said, where did the meat come from, Mum? She said, it came from the shop. <laughs> I said, where did the shopkeeper get it from? She said, it came from the farm. I said, where did the farmer get it from? She said, it came from the cow. I'm like, where did the cow get it from? And she said, it is the cow. <laughs> I was like, what? I'm eating the cow. I'm eating the cow. And I just stopped. Mm. And she thought it was a phase I was going through. And then, I, I, I always say that I went vegan as a kind of feminist act. You know, every female on this planet produces milk for its own children. Yeah. It's as simple as that. So the idea of you going and taking, taking, when a female has given birth, her milk is ready to feed her baby, then you take the baby away mm -hmm. and take the milk yourself. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard a cow cry at that time. A cow will cry all night. Any animal would. You've been carrying a baby for so long and then somebody just takes it away. She hasn't even had the joy of sex because somebody's artificially inseminated her. Mm. Then they come along and inseminate her again to keep her pregnant and keep her milking at the same time. I heard about that and I was like, what? And human beings are the only animals that drink milk after infancy. You can be really clever and say, well, cats do, but we only do it if we feed it to them. Mm. If they kind of, you know, um, naturally, after infancy, we grow our teeth and we get on, you know, eating, eating other stuff. So anyway, I mean, there's all that stuff. And I just, I didn't even say I went vegan. I just said, I don't want anything from animals. The first day, man, the first, <laughs> the first day I heard the word vegan, I was walking down the street and there was a kid with a, a, an ice cream and he went, do you want a lick? And I went, no, nah, no, nah, because it's got animal products in it. And this other guy went, you're a vegan. And I jumped on him and I started eating him. <laughs> I thought he said, it sounded like nigger or something. Yeah. I've never heard the word before. And I started beating him and I held on my back. And I went, no, vegans are all right. If vegans is a good word. <laughs> I'd never heard the word before. So you actually got to this process by your own? Completely path. by my own. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know, there was no group. I knew nobody. Um, I didn't know what the word vegetarian, vegetarian meant or veganism or anything like that. I just kind of went to it naturally. And so, and I remember kind of coming to London and going to vegan fairs, they're really popular now. But um, you used to go there and there was like all these old hippies and just like me, the only black guy there. And I'd see, if I saw another black person across the hall, I'd go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we kind of gravitate to each other, you know. And, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is kind of ironic because, you know, there's really big, communities in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Asia, of vegans. They mm. don't even use the word vegan. You know, Aital, there's loads of different words. Mm. There's tribes in Asia that are completely vegan. Um, but when they were over here, they really didn't get involved in the vegan movement and they didn't use the word vegan and, you know. Well, so why should they if they already had their own Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yes, for them, it's just, it's yeah. just nothing. Um, but, you know, I went to... Um, I went to a vegan fair in um, Hammersmith a couple of years ago, and I was blown away. The range of people, young and old, Muslims, Buddhists, 
all kinds of people. I was just so pleased. I just thought we've arrived. You know, and there's a thing now which I can never pronounce, intersexualism. It's like connecting it all, veganism. Because I always was, I couldn't understand why people, a lot of people that were into animal rights weren't into human rights. And why a lot of people that were into human rights weren't into animal rights. And, and I, I saw the connection with all of them, mm. you know? Um, and so, I mean, the, the, the class of people that like fox hunting are the same class of people that used to have slaves and would let a slave go and say, right, we're going to chase you. Mm. And if you're free, you're free. And then we're going to, just, just like a fox, they used to do that to us. Mm. So I saw the connection years ago. And it was really frustrating sometimes because um, I used to hang out with people, you know, kind of hunt saboteurs and things like that. And they were just I mean, dedicated, but dedicated in one way. And I was always trying to get them to, to kind of see other struggles as well and connect them. And it's really good seeing that it's happening now. You get these people, academics that do lectures on veganism and connecting it to slavery and connecting it to capitalism and all this kind of stuff and, and environmentalism. You know, it, it, it's great. And, and, and a lot of people are interviewing me saying, you know, do you think they're hypocritical? Do you think it's just trendy? Some of it may be. But actually, a lot of it will stick, and I think a lot of people really care. And a lot of doesn't matter. Really it's trendy. If it's one cow saved, yes. in reason, stupid. It's a, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I used to get like letters in the days when we used to get letters before emails. It used to be mainly letters from usually young people, sometimes children even, but usually young people, and it would say. I read your poem or I heard you speak and I want to be a vegan. I'm going vegan now because of you. And I would write back and say, no, don't be a vegan because of me. Be a vegan because you want to be vegan. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, don't put me up on a pedestal. What happens if I slip? What, what happens if I do something wrong you don't like? Or, mm. you know, find why you like veganism. I don't want somebody to say to you, oh, you're a vegan, tell me about it. And you go, well, I'm a vegan because Benjamin Zephan, I really like him and I'm following him. <laughs> No, I want you to be able to, you know, reason, give your own reason. You prefer to suggest the idea. Yes. And then they follow their own path. I want the world yeah. to be vegan, but I want them to understand. I want people to understand why it's important, not just do it because it's, you know, because Prince is vegan or Benjamin Zephyr or whoever it is. Mm. I think it's important that people in the public eye suggest the ideas. Sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you're yeah. right, yeah, if mm. following somebody's not... Yeah. You know, it, it would any time that happened, nobody went back and went, well, I'm going to start eating meat. <laughs> it just made them study, you know what I mean? And they would write another letter and they'd say, oh, yes, I can, you know, I can... You know, I want them to feel it because what happens if they don't really feel it mm. is that they go, oh, I'm, I'm tempted by the bacon. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when I smell bacon, I smell death. Mm. You know, I've been in Lebanon one night and I came across during the war there, the Civil War, a pile of dead bodies burning. So when I smell meat, I smell meat. Same smell. I, yes, yeah. same smell. Yeah. Um, so um, that's not intellectual for me. That's emotional. You know, I feel it. Mm. And when I look into an animal's eyes, I see life. When I hear an animal cry, you know, for whatever reason, I want to cry with it. filled with joy the reason is quite plain their food contains no pain they will never wear 
Murderous fucks fair. They don't follow fashion. Their thing is compassion. Things started to go right for me when I started to think for myself and didn't follow the pack. Mm. Yeah. Um, I can remember <laughs> getting a gang of people and I wanted to make a group of poets, right? So you'd have a lead poet and then when I'd be doing the, the main line, people would be coming in with me and, and, and joining in and doing a verse here and a verse there. And somebody's, um, I, I hired a rehearsal room and I'd pay for it in advance, six weeks. We did the first week and on the second week, sorry, we did the second week as well, and on the third week I arrived and all the guys were standing outside the place going, we don't want to do this. I said, what's the problem with it? I said, poetry, stupid man. Let's get a reggae band, man, and we can get some girls that way. Everybody loves reggae, though. And I'm like, no, we want to be different. <laughs> and it's like, it will never take off. And then look what happened to rap. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> and I actually met one of those guys the other day, and he was like really upset. He was saying, Benjamin, you forgot us now. You're a superstar. This and the other day. I was like, hey, bro, do you remember that time? Yeah, you could have come. You could have come trip. with me. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, do, do you think poetry actually saved you in a way. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you could have actually just been definitely stuck definitely. in Birmingham in these kind of gangs. I mean, these guys hang around all their lives in these kind of enclosed ideas and mindsets, but poetry's your escape route. You know, it, 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 it sounds a little bit like a cliche, but it's true. Mm. You know, just like some sometimes music or boxing or something like that save people. It's true. But, but to even more depth, and, I mean, boxing's a great... Like it's an art, really, in a sense. Yeah. But, but there's so much more levels on reggae as well, isn't there? So much more sensitivity levels, uh, more doors can open up. Yeah, and I guess if you want longevity, you you know you you can arrive and just come on the scene and bang, have some success. But if you if you want longevity, then you've got to start thinking outside the box. You've got to put some intelligence into your music and stuff like that. That's why Steel Pulse are still around. And, mm -hmm. Um, you've got to be good at it as well. Yeah. You, 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 you get better. Hey, listen, I know loads of punk bands and reggae bands from the 70s and 80s. When they started, they hardly could play an instrument. Mm. They learned on the job, mm. but they had a lot of passion. Yeah. You know what I mean? They had fire in their bellies. And Which they is just always learned. great to watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I knew people that played in a band, played bass. To this day, actually, I still know some reggae artists that can play reggae in their band put them with another band or something, or tell them to play something else, they can't. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But they've just, you know... They've perfected their own art. Though. Yes, I yeah. Mean, it, it, I yeah. suppose you, the, the types of poetry you wouldn't be able to do other type of people's poetry, you, you just perfect and hone down your own creativity. Or do you find that you can actually take you as a person, as a thing, and put it in different places? Like, you act, do acting, don't you? So Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, I, you know, look at the collaborations I've done. Um, I did one with Kenobi and Sinead O'Connor and... Um, um, I did something called Tamlin recently with Imagine Village, and that's not reggae, you know. I had a I had a massive number one hit with a track uh, with a an Italian woman who was like the Italian um, the Italian version of uh, Susie Quattro. <laughs> you know, what I mean, I just happened to be in a house one night. She had a recording studio, and we went and recorded something, and I just. Did a bit of poetry. Was this a big hit in Yugoslavia or somewhere? No, 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 no. That was something else. That yeah. wasn't my album. That was my album. Yeah, yeah. But and then I got a couple of uh, a couple of months later, I got a call from her. We are number one. Can you come and make a video? <laughs> uh, I couldn't even bloody go and make a video. I was busy. So, but you know, and she was like, I can't even remember her name now. But she was really big, and it's completely rock. Mm. You know, it was pop rock. 
and I like doing that. But actually, when I start to write, on the whole, I've got a kind of reggae beat going on. You know. Is that in your head, or do you actually physically play the reggae in the background? I, no, no, it's, it's just in my head. I play, yeah, yeah. I, I do play bass, but um, you know, reggae is my roots, really. Mm, yeah. mm. But you can actually transpose you as a personality, as a thing, into other places. Oh yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do acting. Yeah, yeah. You do. I'm a professor now. Yeah. Um, I'm a I'm a doctor sixteen times over, and I'm a professor twice over. I'm a professor in one university and visiting professor at another, mm. and. Um, so I've become a teacher, which is really odd, because I left school at 13. Mm. Uh, well, that's more of an indictment to the education system, really. Yeah. Yeah. At the start of every term, I tell my students, all of you in here are more educated in, on paper than me. All of you, <laughs> you know, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, but what I have is experience. Yeah. Um, and as you know, I've been doing some acting. Mm. Um, yeah. I've, I've curated exhibitions. Um, See, in a, in a, it's, it's a hideous word, but you become a brand, you become a thing, don't you? And people know that you're culturally aware enough to make anything that's thrown at you, you can make it happen, you can make it work, aren't you? I'm not sure about anything, mm. but... But you try things. it, though, you're not scared of it. You, so it's, I'm just it, trying to think what I wouldn't do. Um, rob a car now, I suppose. <laughs> I went to rob something the other day, I was in a shop. <laughs> I went to steal something. I just thought it was just too bloody expensive. And this company, anyway, this particular company that I was going to rob from, they don't care about the environment, they don't care about nothing. And I bought one, and I was going to rob the other one, and I just saw the newspaper headlines, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. saw, yeah. <laughs> Try to explain the subtleties of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it is a case of who's robbing who, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I just, I just went, no, I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> Would it be a similar kind of newspaper headlines as the OBE, turning down the OBE? Would you let this man near your daughter? Um, <laughs> Did you get a lot of heat for that? A lot of people, a lot of mainly women, wrote to me and said, yeah, you can have my daughter. <laughs> 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 um, but that was the Sun head, news headline. I yeah, yeah. That, right? um, because a lot um, of people turned down OBs. It wasn't, it's, I mean, it's not... David Bowie turned down an MBE or an OB, but he didn't get the same right. kind of heat, did he? Actually, I've got to go back. I've got to tell you something. Sorry, I'm, I've just made a bit of a mistake. That headline was from... In the 80s, when Trinity College offered me a post, so that's where the would you let that man, would you let this man near your daughter? So my apologies, I got that wrong. But yeah, the turning down the OBE was. I don't get why I was offered it. If you look at, I, I mean, my last book of poetry, I haven't done one for a long time. Last, the first poem in it is a critique of people that accept these gongs. Mm. So you obviously hadn't read that one. And um, and forget that poem. You would know that a lot of what I speak about is against the idea of empire and people ruling people. It's about meritocracy, if you like. It's about. I've, I've always said I'm not against the royal family. You know, my mum thinks she's the queen of Birmingham. You know, what <laughs> I mean, I love loads of kings and queens in in Africa and the Caribbean. Um, it's the institution of the monarchy that we've got to. I, I see mm. as the monarchy. Not the people, but the actual. They can't help you, they're born. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it's the institution, the privilege, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so to give me an award with that, with that in my title, to me, it's like saying, you know, the Club of Slavery or something, you know? It, mm. It's ridiculous. And it's nonsensical because so, it isn't actually an empire. It's not an empire. <laughs> Would you take if it was called a Citizen's Medal? 
I would take it if it came from my peers. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't take it if it came from the state or the monarchy. Mm. So it's actually, I, I, yeah. I, I'm telling you now, I still want to overthrow the state. I'm an anarchist. Mm. You know, and your way. I might be an anarchist with nice shoes or whatever, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I believe yeah. that we would get on better without government if we took responsibility for ourselves. Mm. It's difficult for us to imagine because we've for so long we've got into this pattern of people doing it for us. We um, um, delegate kind of the duties of organising our cities and countries to these people. We delegate our spirituality to these priests and people. We've lost the kind of idea that we can do it for ourselves. You know, I, believe, I don't know if you want to call it God or whatever. I believe there is something spiritual going on. And you, you, could, yeah. and you don't need a Bible. Mm, you can define it any way you want. Sit quietly yeah. with yourself. Just mm. sit quietly with yourself and, and deal with your own conscience. Mm. And when you get quiet enough, you will hear the wind around you. You'll hear the wind going past your ears. You'll hear your heart, you'll hear your blood, and then you'll get in touch with yourself. Call it meditation, whatever you want. And then you don't have this, it's not a God up there and all that stuff. You will see, you, will, not, you won't see, you'll feel that you are related to the trees. Because mm -hmm. they're breathing like you. Again, I said earlier, it's something that you can't really talk about, you have to experience. So I, I believe that we can get back to that. That's before religion, you know, that's before pre that's, we were doing that a long time ago. We can do that again. In the same way we can run our lives again. We can organise ourselves again. When Grenfell Tower burnt, the government left us. The government left the people, the people organised themselves. Mm -hmm. That was anarchy. You know, because people are brainwashed, they think anarchy now is just kind of rioting or something. Um, so... If I, was to, if I was to accept something from the government now, well, no, I wouldn't, you know. I, I just wouldn't. Nothing from state, nothing from church, uh, nothing from the hypocrites. Um, from the people, from educational institutions, I have a soft spot for them, you know. The reason why is when I took my first doctorate, I remember going into a youth club in East London and somebody introduced me as Dr. Benjamin Zephaniah and I kind of went, oh, you don't have to say that. You know. <laughs> I'm not like John Cooper Clark. He, he has to be doctor. I go, ah, it's all right. Um, good old John. He's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I know, I know, I love yeah. him. Um, but some guy went, um, and remember, these are guys that, you know, they're, they're either being in trouble with the police or they're, you know, they're having problems. It's one of these kind of youth centres where they go to keep them off the street and everything. And so as I sat down, one kid said, why did he call you doctor? And I explained, I've, I've been given an honorary doctorate from a university. And I said to him, my biggest kick is like having it in my licence. When the police stop me, I make them call me doctor. And they were like, <laughs> wow, wow. And this kid is like into rap. He said, I can do it. I said, yeah. Mm. I said, okay, you know, you messed up at school, so did I. Mm. But actually, if you work at your craft, you can get recognition from people. And you could become a doctor and you could become a professor. And they were like, wow. So it's an empowering. Yeah, yeah, they feel like, OK, this is not exactly just me obeying Babylon. And you know what I mean by that, mm. right? Mm. It's me taking my own route and getting recognition mm. on my own terms. So that's why I kind of respect education, you know. And I get lots of people that come to me and... Again, I don't want to stereotype too much, but this is the truth. 
they tend to be white middle class people that go, I'm so great that you got so far in life without an education. <laughs> you know, you, you did it so well. Oh, it's so wonderful. And I say to them, okay, take your kids out of school. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> mm, no. If it's so cool, take your kids out of school and let them get beat up by the police and racists and stuff like that. Yeah. And that, let that be their education. No so in way. a way, you made it despite everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes there is a problem. Sometimes in that, you know, I, I wrote a book called Gangster Rap, which is about a group of kids who get excluded from school, but they make it through rap. And there has been some kids that have said, "Well, I am not going to get an education because if Benjamin Zeff and I can do it, I can do it." You know. <laughs> And I'll say to them, no, I, I'm one that made it and got through, but there's lots of people that didn't. You know, I went to visit Brixton Prison the other day to do a talk in there, and when I was in there, I saw a kid in there who went to prison with me in 76 or something. And he's still on that loop. He's still on that loop. Mm. You know, and, and we can almost identify a day when he went one way and I went another. Mm. So... These days, when you sort of articulate what you think and what you feel about the world, it's not so much with poetry, is it? It's like multidiscipline. You talk a lot, you do lectures, you go to prison and do talks. Yeah, novels. So you found a way that poetry is a great way of articulating what you, things at one point in time, but now you found a way of just putting it into lots of different fields. I always think I'm just about getting away with everything else, right? <laughs> Seriously, if I do a lecture or whatever, I've got away with that. If I do anything, <laughs> a, a novel even, Every time I write a novel, I think, that's it. I've got no more in me. Um, even talking like this, I find it slightly difficult. Because if me and you were talking normally, when we were walking over here, before we, when we met, we hogged. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, kind of walked, it was kind of different. But, you know, as soon as we start talking formally, there's a way of doing it. You know? and yeah. I said, when I'm on stage, my mum will say, that's my boy. Okay, you find the stage the most When I'm on place. stage, yeah. doing my poetry, that's me. So it's a stage plus the poetry. Yeah, yeah. stage with my poetry, yeah. 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 Even if I'm on with my band, I think that's a little bit of an act because we've kind of rehearsed it and there's mm. stuff going on. And, but when I'm on my own, I can be rude, I can be outrageous, I can be <laughs> sensitive, I can, be, I can add lib. You know, I really feel at home. You know, some people get nervous before they go on stage. I don't. Let mm. me get on there. I don't know if you've ever seen backstage sometimes when the order's up to you and people go, no, you go on first, you go on, you go on. Oh, yeah. I go, no, let me go on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if I come off and not, they don't want to go on, I can't go back on again, you know what I mean? I'll do it all night. Um, because that's when I'm at home. I remember once somebody introduced me as the next act and I almost hit him. I got so angry. I said, this is not an act. This is the real thing. When I come off stage and after that normal, that's acting for me. <laughs> when I'm on stage, this is me. The rest of it is a kind of act. Mm. You've been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War and produced by Sophie Porter. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush Podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. (laughs) 